Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. So you guys may have seen in the email newsletter that I got expatmoney.com. This is a URL that I have been wanting to get for like six years now. Some other company had it based out of Dubai and they wouldn't sell it to me. They weren't even using it. They weren't doing anything with it, but they wouldn't sell it to me. The guy just said, I'm going to hold on to it and you can't have it. So I tried to negotiate and we went back and forth many, many, many times over the years and I finally negotiated it. I'm not gonna tell you how much it cost, but it was not cheap. I paid a pretty penny for this. So the main website going forwards for all of my work is going to be expatmoney.com. We still have expatmoneyshow.com, but that's really gonna be designated just for the podcast itself. But on the other one, we're gonna have webinars. We have new articles. We started a new blog. We've got new lead magnets. We even started a store on there that we're gonna be selling different courses and programs. So there's gonna be tons of exciting things happening at expatmoney.com. So you guys can go there, check out the new website, let me know what you think and then bookmark the website because you're going to want to come back literally every single week because we got so much exciting things coming out. So expatmoney.com. I'm really excited. I hope you guys are too. There's going to be lots of cool stuff there for you. Okay, let's get to the interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the Managing Director of Free Cities Foundation. He leads the operational management of the foundation with oversight over project delivery, communications, and finance. Before joining Free Cities Foundation, he spent most of his career based in Beijing, supporting trade links between UK and China. Please welcome to the show, Peter Yang. Peter, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Mikkel. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Why don't you take a moment and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you go from working in China to now heading up the Free Cities Foundation? Well, as soon as I graduated from university, I went out to China to teach English and I ended up really enjoying life there and extending my stay from an intended one-year stint to a 10-year stint. And I got into work with the British Embassy over there related to trade and investment. And In around the year 2017, because I was working with the UK government and also with some other companies that were introducing me to new ideas, I started to get more involved in 
kind of libertarian ideas and discover more about the Austrian school of economics, particularly because Bitcoin was a very big phenomenon in China at the time. And so a lot of people that were interested in having free market money were also interested in kind of free market ideas. And as time went on from about the year 2017 to the year 2020, I started to learn more and more about the Austrian school. And then I came across this organization, the what was then the Free Private Cities Foundation. We're currently undergoing a, a rebrand under the name Free Cities Foundation. And their ideas seemed to have a very close alignment to my own in terms of how you might govern society in a way that is fairer and more aligned to market principles. And so I ended up changing from my work in China via a stint in the UK during the whole COVID episode. And I came to find the foundation as a result of kind of exploring the Austrian School of Economics and finding that they had a very practical model for implementing some of its ideas. I think it's interesting. Well, a couple of things that I want to touch on on that. But first of all, coming from China and then finding libertarianism, I think is very interesting. My wife is from mainland China, so I have a pretty good insight onto what the culture and the country is like. And it's kind of funny sometimes when people come from that direction to libertarianism. And I don't know if it's because of they see the way that the government runs there and they're looking for alternatives or it's just a happenstance. I'm not sure. Like any insights from your side, if it was a push from the Chinese government side, the CPP, or what was it that actually brought you to libertarianism? Well, it was in part looking at the Chinese model and coming with the expectation that it was going to be incredibly communist and then realizing that that was true in certain very specific ways. In other ways, it was actually a lot more free market than the UK where I'd grown up. There's no welfare state in China. There's much less regulation in China. There's much more of a business-like attitude for the government in China. So I found that actually what was happening on the ground in China was really impressive. And I spent years trying to wrap my head around exactly what was going right and what was problematic. And this got me into studying economics in my spare time. And I just happened to meet some other expats that were also really into this topic. And I think when you're in China, a lot of people are kind of inquisitive, trying to make sense of what's happening around them. And I just got in with a good crowd that introduced me to these ideas. And that's the path. But it's interesting to know of your connection to mainland China. Which part of the country is your wife from, just out of interest? So Southwest, just outside of Chengdu. Chengdu, okay. I used to live near to there, actually, for three years, from 2011 to 2014 in Nanchong. Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country. I mean, super mountainous, and the cities are very clean. It's very beautiful. I mean, we own properties there. I've been there 20, 30 times to visit her family and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a great part of the country. Really beautiful, especially when you go further west in Sichuan. So it is interesting, the differences in China, because a lot of people come in thinking that it's like a really super hardcore communist country. And then you realize that Chinese are some of the most entrepreneurial people on planet Earth, and they'll create a store or something to sell out of literally nothing and make money and support themselves. Absolutely. There's definitely a vibe of that in China that people are always on the lookout to, to make a bit of money and to serve other people through, through that process, although uh, it's definitely the entrepreneurialism that's driving it. 
The other thing is just like the pace of development and the fact that it's it's quite unplanned. There's a reasonably high threshold in China. I think when I was there, it was something like 4,000 RMB a month, which is a reasonable amount of salary for, for the people over there, under which you don't pay any income tax or have to like declare your income. So a lot of the small scale activity in China was was pretty much unregulated and allowed people to set up these ventures in a way that would be not permitted uh, in Western countries. We just shared a funny article on our Twitter account where we reposted a story from Texas where a couple of young girls, one of them nine, one of them 10, were found to be selling eggs in their front yard and they were issued with a cease and desist order from the local government. It's just funny how we regulate things a lot. We have to do everything by the book in Western countries. But in China, of course, like especially at the low level, things are kind of left free. And I think that's done some really great things for the economy and for the well-being of the people. Well, and then to tie things into today's topic of free cities, I mean, Shenzhen, when they made the economic zone there, whatever it was, 30, 40 years ago, and then look at the economic growth in that area of the country, it just absolutely dwarfs anything else on planet Earth. Shenzhen is a really interesting example. And it's also a good example of the agglomeration benefits you get when you have a free jurisdiction just next to you. Because one of the arguments we make at the Free Cities Foundation is that if governments are willing to set up an autonomous jurisdiction within their country as a kind of trial, then if you look at other examples, whether it's Monaco, whether it's Singapore, whether it's Hong Kong, you find that on the other side of those of those developments, uh, particularly when you have added levels of autonomy, as was the case in, in Shenzhen, you also get really impressive benefits to the host nation as well. So Shenzhen's story is an incredible one and one that I think people should really study carefully if they want to understand how countries really develop and make their people prosperous. So why do more governments not go this direction? Because I mean, you can look at, I mean, any of those places that you just mentioned. I used to live in Singapore. I've traveled to and from Hong Kong and Shenzhen, these places multiple times and you see the growth and you see the change on such a fast basis. Like it's this, we're not talking in generations, we're talking in a few short years. Why are more governments not adopting these types of ideas? I think it's mainly due to the political system we have, which is a majoritarian one person, one vote system, whereby you need to make arguments that sound appealing to many people in order to get elected, but actually may not take into account the nuances of the economics of the situation. I think people in general are not really hardwired to think well about macro questions or large numbers or how people interact in large groups. We're hardwired to interact in small social groups and some of the more abstract ideas about how markets work and how if you have free exchange, it will make everyone better off and it will help to alleviate poverty more effectively than coercively redistributing wealth. I think those kinds of nuances are harder to explain to people. And because most Western societies have a kind of majoritarian one person, one vote system, we tend towards systems that are, are, are in general more prone to, to regulate, more prone to, to redistribute wealth through coercive mechanisms. And I would point to that as the main driver of, of why we don't have Hong Kong-like policies in countries like the UK, where I am based. Well, I think it's also interesting because, okay, I, I'm not an American citizen, I'm a Canadian, but I mean, I watch a lot of the US politics and watching the two parties just go at each other's throat and two years of campaigning and just hundreds of millions of dollars spent on that and so much spinning of the wheel. 
And you compare that to somewhere like Abu Dhabi, where I lived for eight years, and it's a monarchy in the country and stuff just gets done. I'm not saying that I believe in monarchies or having a ruler by any means. I mean, I'm pretty much an ANCAP. I don't believe in any of these types of systems. But it, it's just wild to kind of see the differences between countries and what gets done. I mean, traveling through the US and Canada, looking at the road system, looking at how the public sector is run and the expenses that are used on these programs that don't actually benefit because there's so much bureaucracy is very bizarre to watch. I think that at the Free Cities Foundation and the work that you're trying to do, I think that it's trying to probably address a lot of these issues. Yeah, there are different approaches to trying to change the system. One approach is to say we're going to try and convince entire populations of millions of people at once that we are correct and run for political office. Or you can just try and build something new and allow people voluntarily to opt into the new system. And if what you're proposing is genuinely better, then more and more people will do that. If what you're proposing is worse, then you won't be successful. Or if what you're doing is difficult, you won't be successful. Now, We've chosen the latter path because we think that there are many people already operating in the space where they're trying to change politics through conventional means. And we've just seen countries become, whether it's, you know, the US, Canada, European countries, we've just seen countries become more and more regulated, the government become larger and larger. Whatever's happening doesn't seem to be effective through conventional political means. And so, but what you do see is where there are kind of peculiar historical circumstances, like those that developed around Hong Kong and Singapore, you do get very large scale migration and very obvious benefits, which manifest themselves clearly to the people that want to live a better life for themselves. But sometimes I feel like people learn the wrong lessons from what happened in those places. So our focus is to try and build new Hong Kongs and Singapores and give more people the choice for the kind of place they live, because we think that's probably going to be the best use of our time and expertise, given the number of players that are already trying to influence in other ways. So how does this work then? Do you actually approach governments or governments are approaching you because they have the idea of wanting to start a ZETI or an area that's for a free trade zone? Well, generally, we would try and approach governments and we would make the case to them that having a more autonomous area within their formal jurisdiction would be mutually beneficial. So we do have conversations. We've had some conversations in some Latin American countries. Honduras is well known about. Uh, we've also been referenced publicly by the government of El Salvador. We're having discussions in West Africa. It tends to be with countries where they're facing difficulties and they're looking for innovative solutions. And the reason why we do tend to focus most of our efforts in developing countries is that developed countries became developed over a period of hundreds of years, typically. The UK is the example I know best. And the story of the UK is, is a really interesting one of how it became as developed as it is today, the Industrial Revolution, the policies that were adopted during, during that period that led to massive alleviation of poverty, loads of inventions and innovations that spread all around the world, global trade, all of these things. But people tend to look at countries as they are today and say they're a product of the policies they have today rather than the product of the policies plus their history. And in developed countries, if you have a system that has accumulated capital over centuries, you can actually do quite a lot wrong 
to damage that system or at least to slow the growth of that system before people really will diagnose what the problem is correctly. So I would argue that's largely what's happening in the UK. We've accumulated all this capital. I'm calling from a house today that was built in 1895. Uh, That's pretty normal for this area. This house is still being used by people. We've still got this capital. We accumulated it a long time ago in a period where the government spending amounted for about 7%, 8% of GDP. Uh, Now it's somewhere like 40, 45, 50%. So our focus now is in developing countries because they don't have this kind of incorrect diagnosis of why they are in the situation they are today. They're just kind of looking for solutions. And they see the stories like of places like Hong Kong and Singapore as inspiring because they know that those countries went from a very low standard of living to a very high standard of living within a matter of decades. And they want to learn how that happened. Singapore is really curious because I always wondered when other countries look at a place like Singapore, if these countries in Africa or in Latin America or these other developing areas, if they look at somewhere like Singapore and be like, hey, we could be the next Singapore. But we also have so many dictators and despots around the world. And I think that they just kind of like the status quo. Their life is very good and they're having things their way. They don't seem to really care a lot what happens to the population. So in your dealings with different countries in the world, trying to bring these ideas of liberty and freedom and deregulation, what has been the attitude of the elite class or the executive class in these countries? I think the way you described it is true to a certain extent that I think it's bad thinking to to think in terms of aggregates when you're thinking about populations. And the people that run governments are not governments. Governments are collections of individuals who have their own interests. And people that work within governments are not necessarily acting within the long-term interests of the government and the government's survival. They're generally acting in their own interests. So there's an element of, I think, those two interests not necessarily being aligned, that of the individual and that of the long-term future of the country. But also something that I'm coming to appreciate more and more as I talk to more governments and I explore, for example, when I was in El Salvador exploring, like, why don't you just go full Bitcoin? Why don't you just like eliminate the US dollar? The answer is we can't do that because we'll end up becoming the next Iran. Because in the modern world, if you want to develop in a way that does not align to the standard model, whereby you borrow money from the IMF or the World Bank in order to develop, you take out US dollar-backed lines of credit, you operate on the US dollar SWIFT network, international payment rails, you respect US intellectual property law, become a member of the WHO, do all these things then you're pretty much out of the game of world trade. And I think there's just some real politic to the whole thing. Like there are just certain things that if you don't go along with what everyone else is doing and design your country according to the standard development model, which is recommended by the university economists, then you're not you're going to get shut out of the, of the game. So there's a monopoly on the monetary system, the international trade system. And it might not be to your advantage to try and be the one that breaks out of that. And I think that's part of the reason why El Salvador, well, it's it's kind of like still in its very early stages in terms of its adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender. Okay. But that doesn't really answer the question because my question is more, how do you have these despot countries in poor parts of the world with corruption that is rampant? I'm curious what their opinion is of going into a free private, free market type of system. Are they open to the ideas? Do they look at it and go, no, that this is not going to be in the benefit of the individual, even if it'll be in the benefit of the collective? Because I definitely understand the difference 
between the individuals and the government and what's the best interest for the individual and what's the best interest for the government. I mean, I don't think that any of these people are really looking for long-term or trying to do what is going to help the masses, even though there's tons of virtue signaling out there and people pretend. I think that it's all hogwash. I think it's completely ridiculous and doesn't speak to human nature. But that's why my question is, in your experience with dealing with governments, have you seen that any of these countries are actually interested in making massive changes like what happened in Singapore, like what happened in Shenzhen or Hong Kong, and they deregulated, they gave back power, and it actually ended up being good? Yeah, I mean, so I can speak on behalf of my personal interactions, and then also on behalf of interactions that other members of our organization have had. And I think it, it just depends on the leader, whether they have the right kind of foresight to introduce something new. So the Honduran ZAs, for example, I mean, Honduras is regarded as a country with, with lots of problems with related to corruption and crime. And about 12 years ago, the president of the country at the time decided that they were going to introduce this zones for economic development and employment law, whereby they would have autonomous developments within the country. But it now seems that the tide is turning and that the current government under Xiaomara Castro is very unfavorable towards these zones. So those zones are now in a bit of a situation where they're kind of pushing back and negotiating uh, with the government in order to try and retain uh, some of the freedoms that they've been allowed under the under the law. So I'd say that there is willingness, but we live in a kind of complex world where certain people are amenable to ideas and others are not. And branching out and doing something that is new, particularly in a, in a more market-driven direction, given that I think the natural state of human psychology that we think about wealth as like something that needs to be that is finite and needs to be shared around rather than something that needs to be produced through efficient mechanisms. I think that you're always going to have challenges when you're trying to introduce a new model. And we've we've had some traction in some countries, as I say, like Honduras historically and El Salvador now seems to be moving more in a, in a market direction. But yeah, it's it's a very complex situation and not always an easy thing to do. Okay, well, let's dig into some of the countries because I think the most famous project is definitely Prospera. It's probably the one that people are very famous with. Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about some of the other Zetis that are in Honduras, and then we can talk about El Salvador as well. Sure. So there are currently three functioning ZAs in Honduras, which are autonomous zones that kind of go beyond what would normally be allowed in, say, a special economic zone like Shenzhen, and they allow a parallel legal structure to operate within the zone. So the zones that exist at the moment are Prospera, Morazan, and Orkadia. The two that I've visited out of the three are Prospera and Morazan. And as you say, Prospera is probably the most well-known internationally. Prospera is based on the island of Rautan, which is up right on, on the north side of the country. And it has I believe something like 70 people working there, something like 300 e-residents, and they have the process of expanding the, the site. They have got a, a new development that's a large hotel complex that they're looking at bringing into the site at the moment. They're constructing some new housing there, and it's a place where they're trying to come up with, with governance principles that align very closely to the ideals of voluntarism, whilst also being compatible with the international financial system, the international trade system. And they've done a lot of work on developing policies that do that in the most effective way. It's sad what's happening there with the change of direction of the government, because this is a project that's been going on for, what, 10, 12 years, something like this, from when the founder of your organization, I mean, he was one of the founders for Prospera, correct? 
So yeah, Titus Gable was the founder of our organization, was involved in, in the in the setting up of, of Prospera and involved in some of the processes regarding the, the ZA law that when that was set up in Honduras around the time of 2012, 2013, when that was getting introduced. Uh, it's only in the last sort of three to four years that the projects like Prospera, Morazan or Kadir have started to actually establish themselves and build things on the ground, get people into the projects. But we have seen that there has been a new government elected in Honduras, which ran on a anti-ZA platform, anti-autonomous zone platform, which is now trying to kind of see what it can do to change this model. One of the good things about the ZA law, uh, as we see it at least, is that it had strong constitutional protections. So there are various legal things that need to be done in order for these zones to be disrupted in their current form. And if they are disrupted, there are various ways the government needs to compensate the investors. So it's not a straightforward thing to do. And that's part of the thing that we work with governments on, because we believe that it's the private property rights and markets and the ability for like investment only transpires when investors know that their investment will be protected in the long term. And so we think that establishing strong legal foundations for allowing development to happen is really important. And so that's why when we work with governments, we advise that they look at things like international treaties and constitutional amendments to try and protect the zones as they are. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen with the ZAs in Honduras. It's fair to say that the government has taken a kind of a critical tone in their approach to the, the ZAs. But as I say, the, the people that are working there are working with the government and making a case that actually this is a good, mutually beneficial thing for, for the government and also for the people of Honduras who are a few of which are now getting employed in these zones and starting to improve their lives through their interaction through them. But why is it the government has even ran on an anti-ZETI platform? Why would they do something like this? What is it that they see the ZETIs being a threat to or, or how is it dangerous to their society? I don't understand this part of it because for me, it just seems like destroying a beautiful thing that's been created and so many people worked so hard on. Well, I should clarify that there are a number of different issues they campaigned on, but one of the issues was that they would try to get rid of the ZAs. And the narrative that they're using is that this is an undermining of the Honduran government's sovereignty, which to an extent is, is true because these are autonomous zones that have their own high degree of autonomy. That's not necessarily a bad thing when you think about it. I mean, in the United States, for example, the states have their own degree of autonomy. And if an individual state, imagine the system was totally run by, you know, through the centralized federal government. And imagine a state said, we want to have the degree of autonomy that a modern state has within the United States today. People could push back and say, this is undermining the sovereignty of the US federal government. But actually, it might work better to have a federated system, a system where sovereignty is more dispersed. And, and it's quite common for countries to have that. We just talked about China and we saw that the special economic zones in China were able to be incredibly successful through being autonomous, particularly Shenzhen, but also other places like Xiamen, like Shanghai's Pudong area, like Tianjin. They've been incredible successes. But as we were saying earlier, politicians have the incentive to try and win elections. And you win elections by creating a narrative about what's happening and spreading that narrative. I mean, it was a great opportunity to visit these projects when I was in Honduras, but they're really at an early stage. We're talking a few dozen houses in Morazan, like 64 housing units there, a handful of businesses, you know, small business owners that are starting to gradually establish their shops, sell to people, employ people. It's really like early stage stuff. But 
you can sell this narrative of it's a loss of sovereignty because foreigners are investing in these zones. They can they can say it's, it's a kind of non-Honduran thing, that it represents outside interests coming in and stealing Honduras. There are all kinds of narratives that you can spin in order to make things like this look unfavorable. But what we just say is think about things from the practical perspective. You know, how do you think, if you don't think Honduras is going to develop through the mechanism of establishing clear property rights and allowing people to do business freely, then what do you think the solution is? Because the current government says the solution is more socialism, and that has been tried repeatedly in the region historically with not very favourable results. So we say it's time to try something different, and these zones, we're not going to force anyone to move to these zones, but we think these zones should be allowed to exist and offer opportunities for people that want to move there. That's the thing. I think that it is wild. It's not like the current system has not been tried before. And I mean, I've traveled to Honduras. I've traveled to all of the countries in Central America and most of the countries in Latin America. And there's some incredibly poor places here, like unbelievably poor. And they just want more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. And ideas that come in that are proven to work and they get destroyed. It just leaves me scratching my head. That's unfortunately the case, and that's the job we're up against. <laughs> and uh, as they say, there are different ways of bringing about change. You can either try and change the mind of an entire populace through a popular election, or you can focus on specific zones and try and change them and show through example that those are effective. As I say, we're focusing on that second option, but it doesn't mean it's easy, and it doesn't mean that you have to sometimes make a strong moral case when a new government comes in that is less sympathetic towards your ideas. It's it's a struggle, I think, always, if you want more freedom and prosperity in the world based on market principles to make that case to people. And we're just part of this fight. We're trying to do what we can to influence it in a positive direction. So a bit of an update for you guys. Our Facebook group, Expat Money Forum, has grown so fast. It's unbelievable. I think we are at around 6,000 people who have joined the group. It's pretty funny in there, I have to be honest with you, because sometimes we get these really woke commies that try to join the group. They last like a week and then someone pushes them out or they say something that upsets and these social justice warriors just start crying and get really, really angry and throw a fit and think that they're tactics of being a victim are going to work in our group. And it's just not the case. So it's so funny. I want you guys to see what's going on in there. We call it shaking the tree. So anytime you see in the group, someone shaking the tree, either through a meme or something that they're putting out, it just, it's so funny to watch the reactions. Anyways, the group is growing like crazy. If you're not a member already, I highly encourage you to join. It's free. There is no cost. And you can either find it by searching for us on Facebook, Expat Money Forum, or go to expatmoneyforum.com and it'll redirect you to the site. We're having so much fun over there. If you haven't joined the conversation, I hope you do soon. That's it. Let's go. Let's get into El Salvador then. How are things on the ground? How has your work been received in that country? Because El Salvador's obviously taken the headlines for the last, whatever it's been, 12 months or so with the adoption of Bitcoin. I'm kind of curious on what your experiences are visiting the country and interacting with the people and with the government there. I really enjoyed visiting El Salvador. It's a very exciting place. The fact that it's only got a population of six and a half million people means that it can be quite small and dynamic. 
And I get the impression that the government under President Bukele is willing to try new things. And adopting Bitcoin as legal tender was a really bold move. And as someone that's been into Bitcoin, I mean, I'm not an, a massive old timer in the Bitcoin space. As I say, I got into this in, in about 2017. That's when I started buying Bitcoin and got interested in Bitcoin. But for me, as someone that's like looked at it for years, to actually see it being implemented on the ground was a very exciting thing. And it is being used and it is being adopted by businesses, even though it's still a very small amount of the actual number of transactions that's happening in shops, for example. It's taking a larger and larger amount of the global remittance market, all of the big chain stores, international stores from the beginning, because it was legal tender, introduced payment systems to accept it. More and more individual people in El Salvador are learning how to use Bitcoin. They've just had a pilot project rolled out by a charity called My First Bitcoin, Mi Premier Bitcoin in Spanish. And they're going to be running an educational program for all of the children in El Salvador to learn how to use Bitcoin that could get rolled out across the, the whole of the country. So my impression of El Salvador was that they're growing in confidence. They're willing to try new things. The Bitcoin thing, I think, has been a really positive move, although it's still early days with the adoption. And in terms of our conversations with the government, they've been pretty receptive to our ideas. But I get the impression that they're quite low on bandwidth. Like they've got lots of ideas coming to them now because they've become suddenly very well known as this place that's just willing to adopt Bitcoin and lots of people are suddenly interested. So we've had some good conversations with them and we hope we can we can continue those conversations. But I would say to any of your listeners that are considering going to Central America, that El Salvador is a really interesting uh, place to visit. And what they're doing there with the economy has, I think, so far been pretty positive. It's one of the most interesting things I think about El Salvador is the conversation that people will be having surrounding Bitcoin. I think that any time that we can talk about these types of ideas and expose our children to it and bring it into the educational system or into the mainstream, I think is going to be nothing but a net benefit for everybody. I can easily see in the next 10 or 20 years, El Salvador leading the way in so much of these technologies if they keep down this path. Because if the programs are being offered, and people are learning about it, and they're not being learned about it, or it's being banned in other countries, like China, for example, or overregulated in the United States, which looks like the direction it'll be heading. The amount of time that those 6 billion people can make and introducing their kids to this industry, I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom how much this can change the world over a generation. Yeah, I totally agree. And I actually think it would be a really nice thing if it did give the people of El Salvador who are, in my experience, just really welcoming and be amazing if this did give them that nice head start. I personally think that Bitcoin is going to be the big story of like the next two to three decades in terms of the world economy. I think the economic realities of the situation the world finds itself in mean that Bitcoin is very likely to come to play a very dominant role in global trade. And if El Salvador can become the first country to learn about that technology and have that natively within their system as a legal tender that is commonly used, then I think that's going to be a huge advantage. And I think that would be a really great thing because it would it would help so many people in that country that have been through, that are now starting to see things improve, but have had like some pretty hard decades over the last century. And I think this is a way that could genuinely offer opportunity and development in that part of the world. 
Yeah. I will echo your sentiments. I have very good friends who are El Salvadorian. I have a couple of employees who are El Salvadorian who are fully into Bitcoin and libertarian and very forward thinking. Even my daughter's godfather, my best friend from back home, was born and raised in El Salvador. Really, really amazing people. And I visited there in 2003. Pretty tragic history, what's happened with the Civil War in decades past. And I mean, I haven't been there in 20 years since, but I remember at that time, you could really see the scars of war on that country. So I'm glad to see that things are going in a new direction. And the adoption of Bitcoin, I think, is going to be like a pivotal point in human history, at least in modern history, as the first country to adopt Bitcoin. And I think it's going to start a chain reaction. I certainly hope that's the case. And I think looking at the situation, I think it's a matter of time rather than a matter of whether it will happen. If we continue to have a functioning form of decentralized money that no individual political actor can control, that anyone can use, that anyone can access, that anyone can transact with, I don't see how that's not going to overtake the existing system. The existing system served its purpose and has genuine advantages over a system where we transacted purely in commodity money. But now we have a technology that is able to add the, I guess, store of value, saleability across time, advantages of gold with the saleability across space aspects of modern digital money into one package. And the fact that that now exists and countries are starting to adopt it as legal tender is something that makes me feel kind of optimistic when we see a lot of quite negative things happening politically and economically around the world. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, there's been other countries that have come forwards, and, and this does steer back into our conversation of free cities. And Panama has also come forwards and say that they will not be charging any capital gains, that it is under their territorial tax system, it is foreign sourced income. So there'll be no capital gains here effectively in Panama. The other one that I read about was the Central African Republic. Are you looking at both of these countries as opportunities for free private cities because they're going in the direction of Bitcoin and more free markets in regards to currencies? We are interested in Panama. Actually, our partner organization, Tipolis, is headquartered in Panama, and we have some, some links there. There's a project called Ocean Builders that I believe is headquartered in Panama. And we are interested if we think that there are opportunities to talk with the government there and the government's open in, in that part of the world in general. Obviously, we've worked already with Honduras. We're having discussions with El Salvador. Panama would be a great addition to that mix. But we're a small team. I mean, our team at the foundation is about 10 or 11 people. And we have a partner organization with a similar number. So we have a relatively small amount of bandwidth. But if, for example, Mikhail, you think that this is something where the government would be susceptible and you've got connections, then we'd be very welcome to kind of pursue as a lead. Regarding the Central African Republic, we have had some discussions, as I say, in, in West Africa, not with the Central African Republic, but Africa is a tricky place to do projects like this, but also in a way, it's a place where more is possible and there's more of a kind of ability to do innovative things in terms of governance due to kind of, I guess, lack of institutions in certain parts of the region. So be happy to look into any of these, these countries. It generally depends on whether or not there's a strong political connection that we can make. And if there is, then we would explore it and see if it goes somewhere. Well, big shout out to the guys at Ocean Builders. They're some of my closest friends here in Panama. I hang out with some of the guys there 
pretty much on a weekly basis. So we're very, very trustworthy, really, really exciting things that they're doing with seasteading and some of the projects that they're doing off the coast of Panama. To circle back to West Africa, can you share any of the countries that you've been trying to work with in there? I've traveled really extensively in Africa, but don't have a lot of experience in West Africa. So I'm unfortunately not able to share the name of the country with which we've had the most discussions because of a non-disclosure agreement that we have with the government and uh, some of the people that we're working with there. But we have ambassadors in Senegal and Nigeria, and those are relatively new ambassadors. So in addition to our core team, we have people that are representing us or trying to find leads for us in different parts of the world. And there are about uh, 60 to 70 people that are, that are doing that. And we've got people based in those countries. I was talking to Cesare Martins earlier, who's our ambassador in Nigeria earlier today. But, but I would say that it's kind of early days in terms of the leads that we've got in those countries. There is one specific country where we have conversations have gone far, but unfortunately, just due to the nature of the fact that the contracts haven't been signed, I can't really go into much detail about the specifics on that one. Well, if that does get further down the pipeline, then maybe you can come back at some other point and discuss it when it is public knowledge and you can share with us more on that exact project. No, I would love that. So explain to me this ambassador program that you're working on or that you have set up, because this is the first time I've heard it. How does that function? So our ambassadors are generally well-connected people in that are sympathetic to the idea of autonomous cities that are based in different countries. And we have a call with them twice a year via Zoom where we all get together and we exchange updates on what's happening in our region. And we pass on as the foundation what we're doing in terms of our activities, our strategies, any events that are coming up. For example, we're holding a, a conference later this year called Liberty in Our Lifetime. And so we encourage ambassadors to attend and uh, network at these events. We're also starting to develop more activities around that program, such as working groups to help us with certain topics like, well, you know, what should the best strategy be for engaging with governments? What should the best social media approach be? Things like this. So ambassadors are like networks of volunteers that are sympathetic to our ideas that kind of help us out and provide us advice and, and make connections for us. So as I say, if you want to find out the full list of ambassadors that we have, you can go to our website, which is www.freecities.net. And you can go to the team section and then down the bottom, there's, there's a map and you can see all the ambassadors listed and, and featured on that map. I think that's an excellent way to do it, especially people who, I mean, you say sympathetic, but I wouldn't say I'm sympathetic to these ideas. I want to push these ideas forwards. I mean, I, this is exactly the type of things that I'm completely interested in and have been interested in for decades is how humans organize themselves and finding more efficient and effective manners. I mean, we quickly touched on seasteading in the Ocean Billers group, but there's also what's happening in Liberland where they're trying a different approach to freedom. There's a whole bunch of different organizations that are out there that are trying to move these ideas down the field and being able to support one another and having bringing in a larger community who can support it, I think is absolutely the way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. And the Ambassador Network, we're trying to kind of make it more active and involve it. And it's good that we have got all of these supporters from around the world because it helps us to bring in lots of different perspectives on the work that we're doing and help us to understand the different political contexts that there are in, in different regions. But it's also really encouraging to know that this is not just a small movement. We do have a very large and diverse set of supporters that are willing to put their name behind the concept. And that's a really encouraging thing. And I'm hoping to do more with it in the next few months as, as the MD. 
Okay, well, we started the conversation by talking about China and Hong Kong and Singapore and all of these practical examples of countries that have done something similar that we know and are already up and running. Then we kind of talked about some of the more famous projects and the legal systems with Honduras and the direction of El Salvador and how Bitcoin is driving a lot of these things. And then we kind of got into talking about how people can get involved with the ambassador program and other ways that they can find out more information. But we still haven't gotten into what is it that we stand for? What is it the organization stands for? Functionally, how do you guys work? How do you actually help and make changes in these countries? So the main model that we promote is the free private city model. And that name has the word private in it because it focuses on private property rights. We think that that is the key to development. And when you have clearly defined rights for people to be protected against aggression from others and to be able to accumulate capital and invest and trade peacefully, that leads to strong development. And so the model that we propose is a contract-based model that would be more familiar to people that were working in the business world than to most people that are working within a political system today. Essentially, what we propose is that there are areas of land that are run by a city operator, an operating company that operates as a for-profit entity and has individual citizens as its customers. And those customers have a citizen's contract whereby all of their rights and obligations, such as how much they have to pay to be a member of, of this city or a citizen of this city will be, and also what the city guarantees to them in return. So for example, the city would likely guarantee that they would there would be policing, that their uh, rights would be protected, that there would be independent third party arbitration in the case of disputes, that basic infrastructure would be maintained. And all of these things are laid out in a, a contract for services, similar to the contract that you might have if you were renting an apartment. There are various conditions. There are things you can't do to the apartment. You can't drill holes in the walls of the apartment if that's part of the conditions. And you pay a certain fixed amount for that. And that's basically the essence of the free private cities model that we advocate. And at the core of that model is the idea of the principle of voluntarism, that in every system, you should try and get people to consent as much as possible in their interactions with each other. So we should try and maximize the understanding of what is allowed and what isn't allowed within a particular jurisdiction and give people the right to exchange freely as long as both parties consent. So that's the main principle that we stand for. And we talked about various historical examples of, of cities that have developed quickly and, and places that have had, had trouble. I would say that the places that have come nearest to a strong private property rights, small government model have been the most successful. And those that have veered furthest away from that have been less successful or slowed their growth. So that's why we, we promote this private property rights based model. So what are some of the pushback you get when you talk to organizations or groups or governments or anybody who's not on board with these types of things? What are the holes they try to punch in the ideas? Well, they say that in this system, there would be no regulation. So companies would be able to do whatever they want and people wouldn't be protected. And our response to that is generally that if companies do whatever they want and they don't serve the needs of their customers, then they just go out of business. Uh, the problem that you tend to have uh, with large corporations and the complaints people have about large corporations is that they have certain monopoly privileges, such as intellectual property rights or the ability to have legislation passed that makes it difficult for their competitors 
or just in general, large numbers of regulations that mean that there's an economy of scale associated with legal compliance. And in a free private city, none of these things exist. Basically, companies are there and they're allowed to offer services on the market voluntarily to people that want them. And if they treat their customers badly, then they will go out of business. And we tend to think that we have a lot of control over our political system if we live in a majoritarian system because we have a chance to go and vote for one of two normally very similar political parties once every five years. But actually, the rights that we have as a consumer are a lot greater. If we go, if we don't like the food that's being served in in Asda versus Morrison's or, or, or Tesco's, we can choose an alternative. In the same way, if we don't like Android phones, we can choose Apple phones. We have the power to walk away and exercise our vote through our money and the capital we put behind our decisions in the market economy. Whereas actually, if we really think it through within a normal political system, we, we don't have very much choice at all. So our objective is to try and extend the choice that we have in market transactions uh, even further as a way of creating a more voluntary and peaceful society that helps everyone. So Milton Friedman, vote with your feet. If people don't like the city, then they can leave and there will be no one else there to pay the prices and the city will go downhill. How does it work with utilities, with things like this? Are they covered by the city or is it a third party organization that has a contract with the city and you have choices? I'm thinking really simple, mundane things like garbage collection or power or water or those base level type of things that need to be done. So in terms of what we endorse, we advocate a particular legal framework for the interactions between a for-profit operator and a citizen. But within that legal framework, it's basically an entrepreneurial decision for the city operator as to how they provide some of these services. And it may be that they think that contracting a single company in the case of small developments makes the most sense and they could just contract that company directly. Or it may be that they think that allowing citizens to make their own choice is fine as well. In the case of Morazan, for example, which is one of the other ZAs other than Prospera that's just outside of San Pedro Sula in Honduras, they have a single company that manages the security on site and that's paid for through the central management company. But then there are individual residents, for example, that have their own Wi-Fi contracts. So some houses have Wi-Fi, others don't because it costs something like $30 a month to have Wi-Fi. So that's quite expensive for some people, but affordable for others. And this is something that's decided on an individual contractual basis. So our answer is that really there's no right or wrong answer to whether or not a particular utility should be provided by the operator or not. We just leave this down to the entrepreneurial decision of the particular operator. And also, it may be the case that in certain contexts, one solution works and in other contexts, another solution works. That's the beauty of the free market. You don't have to have a one size fits all. You can have different kinds of development that spring up and cater to different kinds of tastes and environment. So any insights from your side on the size of these communities or the size of the cities on what you think are going to work? Because I think when we look at some countries, if you look at these massive, massive countries, they have so many problems because the people who are in charge are so disconnected from the people who are on the ground. Any insights on a sweet spot or a size that we should kind of look towards for these types of communities? So the size that we really aim for as a minimum viable size for a free city is something like 10,000 people as a kind of end size. You can look at various 
small states like Liechtenstein, for example, that's got about 35,000 people and that manages to function as an independent state. And then you go up to the size of like, say, Hong Kong, which has got something like six, seven million people. And that functions pretty well. But generally, we're talking about developments in the tens or hundreds of thousands when we talk about the free private cities. That's the kind of scale that we think it's going to work best on. But again, it will be these developments as they stand at the moment, we're talking a few dozen people. They're in quite an early stage. I mean, I made reference to Prosper and Morazan. Those are kind of both started out as 58 acre developments. Prosper has recently just expanded. So it's something like I think 150, 160 acres now of total area. So these projects are, are currently in, in a relatively early stage, but we see there being the right kinds of economies of scale once you get to like populations in, in the tens of thousands. And so we're looking at that as our kind of long-term strategy for how these places could develop. And how many of these types of communities or cities do you expect to see in the world? Or, or even a better question is, you know, what is out there right now or in the starting phases of there right now? And then looking forwards 10, 20 years, what would your hopes be? So when you look at the kind of functional elements of what a free private city is, so the fact that there is a parallel legal structure, the fact that there is independent commercial law, the fact that there is private security, things like this, really like you only have a large number of those functional elements in Honduras in those three projects, Prospera, Morazan, Orchidea. There are also some other smaller intentional communities that kind of have a libertarian ethos to them. Uh, you could name like Liberstad in Norway. You mentioned that you knew that the guys in, in Liberland are trying to set up something there between the border of Croatia and Serbia. Various like small projects that have like an, an intentional focus to them that want to become uh, more libertarian where there's more of a like legal gray area. So at the moment, I would say Honduras is probably where they're most instantiated, but there are various other projects you could turn to that are either in development or have like a small kind of community of people that are already committed and living together, but just haven't been able to obtain full legal autonomy at this stage. Okay. Why don't you tell me about the event that you have coming up? Because I think it's really does push forward the ideas, not just of your own organization, but freedom as an actual solution to a lot of the problems that are happening in the world right now. Yeah, so this October, we're hosting an event called Liberty in Our Lifetime in Prague from the 21st to the 23rd. And the theme of that conference this year is going to be parallel structures for progress. And so as we discussed earlier in this conversation, there are various different ways of trying to bring about change in the world. You can either try and convince everyone or you can create a parallel structure that you ask people to voluntarily opt into. So you and I in this conversation have talked about the parallel structures in governance that are emerging in places like Honduras and West Africa. But there are also some parallel structures in, in finance that we refer to, like Bitcoin or like there are certain institutions financially that are doing things differently that are kind of contrarian outside of the usual system. And there are also some parallel structures in online learning, education that are emerging and offering people an alternative to those education systems offered by the states in which they live. So our conference in Prague is going to showcase these parallel structures from a range of different areas over three days. And we'd love for you to be involved, Mikhail, and we'd love for any of your listeners to come and join the conference. If they would like to, we can uh, create a discount code for you, which is THORUP20, the number's 20, which will give everyone a 20% discount on a ticket. And this is the place where we're going to showcase 
as many of these projects as possible that are setting up these parallel governance structures, but also lots of new interesting ideas that give people practical solutions for how they can shape their lives and gain greater sovereignty for themselves in the year 2022. Amazing. Peter, thank you so much for today. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? So our Twitter account is quite active. Our handle on Twitter is Free Private City. We also have a website, www.freecity.net. And that has got information about our ideas. And there's a 12-page white paper that you can read for a brief summary of the Free Private City idea that I discussed today. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn and various other social media platforms. We've got a YouTube account as well with some other interviews. So uh, if your listeners want to find out more, there's plenty of places they can do that. Brilliant. Thanks, Peter. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mikhail. Great to be here with you today. Okay. What a fantastic interview. I hope you guys got a ton of insights from that one. Now, if you guys are expats or digital nomads, or you want to be expats or digital nomads or have an international life, then you need to think about your insurance. There is no question about this. Don't try to be Mr. or Mrs. Invincible and think that nothing will happen to you on the road. I hope that nothing happens to you, but you should be covered nonetheless. And don't be one of those people who think that you're going to use the socialized medicine in your host country. Usually these programs suck, to be honest with you. And really, the point of being an expat is not to be a burden on some other country. Really, you want to be taking care of yourself. Personal responsibility. Remember, guys. Okay, so... To find out more about this company, all you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. They have a ton of different options. They're really changing the landscape of insurance, and I'm really stoked to be working with them. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash insurance. You guys can get a quote. You can find out more about what they cover, what they don't cover, how to get involved, which countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can learn more at expatmoneyshow.com. And that's it. Have an amazing week, and I will see you next Wednesday on the podcast. Ciao. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. 
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.